Welcome to Fragmented Minds, a podcast that looks at mental health from the patient's chair. I'm the Xanity System. And I'm Celine. In this episode, we discuss coming out as mentally ill. Before we begin this episode, we have to offer the following disclaimer. This show is for educational purposes and is primarily our opinions. It is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. If you have been upset by or believe you or a loved one have a mental illness as a result of these discussions, please seek advice from your doctor or therapist. Hey there, Sanity. Who's on front today? Well, it's mostly Zane. We have a tyke popping up here and there that happens sometimes. So if there's an interjection from a childish side, that's going to happen today, probably. Might not. Hard to predict these kinds of things. Letting the audience know in case something comes out a little weird and to also (laughs) let the audience know today we're not going to cover anything that, I mean, it could be triggering for some people, but it's going to be safe for the tyke to be around to talk about it so i wanted to be sure people ahead of time okie dokie today we have decided to talk about coming out to family as mentally ill giving our experiences our advice for people who are going through this stage maybe thinking about it uh maybe i've made the decision to do it but i'm not sure how to go about doing it in a good way and Maybe it can give some insight into the thought processes of these events for people who might be on the other side of it as well in the process. That sounds great. I think we're also going to talk a little about the side of coming out to friends as well and dealing with employment. Yep. Okay, great. Coming out to my family was a pretty mixed bag. Do you want to start with your story or should I launch into mine? <laughs> um, Mine is pretty short and kind of... And it's a good example of how not to do it in a way, because I think the most conversation I had about it was with my mother. Now, I don't think I've talked about it on recording so far, but I am voluntarily estranged from my mother and my two siblings, who I tend to refer to on the podcast as hermit and princess. So what happened was my mother was not happy with something I was doing and was trying to tell me to be a bit more grateful for the things I have. And I just turned around and said, oh yeah, grateful for the fact that I wanted to commit suicide. And her first reaction was, don't be stupid, Celine. And I said, oh gee, thanks for reminding why I don't talk to you anymore. Yeah, that sounds like a really stressful situation to go in and then being, getting the response of don't be stupid. I know when I get that kind of response, I think, oh, you you think I'm being stupid then, so this is nothing to worry about. Yeah. It's been her go-to to end topics since I was six. Like, I remember I had the outburst around then of, I get it, you care about the other two more than me. The other two, of course, being my siblings. And that was her response. And so I kind of learned that happened when I was about 21. And I'd been on and off wanting to die when, since I was 14 at this point. So that's long since faded. So don't go looking for the means to hospital section me on that because... I have passed that point, thankfully, but yeah, it did not go well. I thought it once I said, yeah, thanks for reminding me why I don't talk to you. It had sunk in, but the next morning she acted like, like nothing had happened. Um, 
So I was like, fine. I know where your priorities are. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a prime example of why I don't talk to her anymore. Um, it's not the only story I have. I think it's just one of the more blatant. Like, <laughs> but I was too angry to really articulate the situation, which I think was my downfall. So my biggest advice is, of course, the golden rule that you would apply in any kind of situation is consider what will keep you safe. This is a bit of a delicate topic for some people and there is kind of a sense of in some people they might be worried that you're implying that your parents have failed you by because by saying that you're mentally ill. I'm not going to put an assumption on that. Don't make it personal. Don't put yourself in danger for it. And just consider the right moment. Like, Are people around you feeling receptive to you? Do you think they'll if you genuinely feel that they will support you with this, then there's more reasons to do so than not, I would say. But don't put yourself in danger. Try not to let it out in the middle of a heated discussion either, because it takes time and energy to actually talk about these things. And you might have the energy that moment to snap, well, I've been suicidal, but they're not going to be receptive to that. And it's a shame. I think they should be. A trick that I've kind of found out is if you don't know your family's stance on mental health or certain conditions or psychiatry, taking the medications for mental illness, you can start up small, casual conversations. Try not to take personally what they say, but just take in the information to adjust what you're going to tell them if you're going to tell them. Yeah. Um, I find asking questions helps. Like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What would you do if I was dealing with that? And that can give you a good idea of when they might be receptive or how they might respond if you talk about it. In my experience, and it's not the best experience coming out to my family, so I don't want anybody to judge the people involved for how they were in history because I've develop better relationships with most people in my history at this point yeah but i did try to let people know that there were a few problems my mental health had to deal with the alters of course and also had to deal a lot with my experience with gender and and being incongruent with my body because I was assigned female at birth, meaning the doctors took a look and said, yep, that's a girl, but I am a man. And I've been aware of being a boy, a man, masculine, etc. since I was about four. So when I was about 16, I tried to come out to my mom about being transgender because I thought I was going to miss my window of opportunity to do hormone treatment and that I would never be able to transition in adulthood. That's all a myth. But I believed that. And my mom's response, let's see, how do I remember it? What I mostly remember is that talking to her about it, at one point she said that she felt like she was the one that gave me the impression I was a boy. Because what I remember is she said that she assumed that I was a boy when I was in the womb while she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So she said she talked to me like a boy while I was pregnant. And she thinks that had an effect on how I thought about myself as I got older. I don't know if there's any science behind that, but I feel 
bad that she took it upon herself in that way, that she thought that she had confused me from the womb. Well, the thing is, the child's long-term memory doesn't start to develop until they're three, so that is why we don't tend to remember things before then. So I'm not 100% sure if that would have been an influence on you, but there's no way to really know. (laughs) There is a thing called implicit memory that you can have starting in the womb, and that's it's mostly like muscle memory, usually, or body memories. So there can be traumatic things that happened while you were in the womb, and you won't have a memory of it, but your body will still respond to that traumatic input. And that can be really hard to untangle. So I'm I'm not sure they say that playing Mozart while the baby is in the womb or music or talking to the baby has all of these beneficial effects. So I just, whether it's possible or not, I would just not want her to blame herself. You know, I, I would have rather her done research into what it is to be transgender and how to support me but i don't think at the time she really had the capacity to take that onto her plate because we grew up very low income and on welfare assistance so she was constantly stressed out about finances and it was hard for her to deal with bigger issues that we had in the house Mm -hmm. that kind of set me into a deeper depression and a little bit before I came out to her about that I had asked her if I could see a therapist because I was struggling with the voices in my head I didn't know how to control them they were overwhelming they could take over my body and it was frightening I didn't tell her all of that but I just asked if I could see a therapist and the way that she responded to me I think I took her tone of voice wrong because I heard well why would you want to do that which immediately shut me down from telling her I have voices in my head I can't deal with or anything like that. And she was kind of aware that something was going on. She knew that I went by different names sometimes, that I had wildly different clothes and preferences at other times. She just assumed that I was a bit odd, but she had asked questions and every time I denied it or somebody in the system denied it because we didn't think it was safe to tell anybody. Eventually, when we were 18 years old, we were like, well, we're so suicidal and we've been trying to overcome self-harm for several years. Let me see if I can find a therapist for myself. So I started calling the insurance and I started calling different mental health care providers and I asked the insurance, will anything show up at my house to let my mom know that I am seeing a therapist? Because I had gotten the impression that my family was against therapists and was against psychiatry. I'm not sure where that impression started, but I was scared to have them involved in the process. I didn't want my mom asking me what I talked about in therapy because I felt like I would tell her whether I wanted to or not. I didn't want her inadvertently interfering with the therapy process by saying, oh, well, your therapist is wrong because of this, or I wouldn't take it that way, or that's not how I would interpret that. And her opinion mattered so much to me that it was important to me to leave her opinion entirely out of my mental health process so that I could actually work on myself. Mm -hmm. I started taking an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, and I was taking it for four months, and my mom eventually found out that I was taking the medication. That 
was not a great day for me because she was angry that I was taking a medication without her knowledge under her roof or disappointed or something. I, I can't say for her what her emotions are, but this is what I perceived that she was very upset with me. And she asked me if any of my friends knew. And I was like, yeah, most of my friends know because I needed somebody around me who could let me know if I had changed in a worse way. If I like, you know, when you're under psychiatric medication, you should have people around you know so that they can alert you to any extreme changes in behavior that might indicate the medication isn't working for you. Yeah. Then what I remember after telling her that my friends had known she got up from her chair across the room and like passed the gap between us in an instant it felt like and she slapped me right across the face so i felt like she learned i was taking antidepressants mm -hmm. and punished me for it instead of asking me why i would have loved it if she just asked me why do you think you need to take these what are they doing for you etc but instead she told me oh i knew you'd been acting different lately you're flighty which is hilarious to me because growing up with a dissociative disorder i <laughs> my nickname as a child was space cadet i've been flighty my whole life flighty is one of the top tier explanations for my personality and so I, I didn't take that seriously. Maybe she meant more flighty. Maybe she meant in a different way. But I felt like she was misreading what I was experiencing. Because when I took the medications, I thought my family hated me. I thought they couldn't stand being around me. As the medication kicked in, I was just like, oh, they're not doing or saying anything that indicates that. Of course they love me. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to be in the living room more often. I'm going to be in their space more often. I'm going to spend less time hiding in shame from the family that I thought couldn't stand me. I know that they love me. And that was something the medication gave me. And I was never, I don't think I've ever been able to express that to her that I had that clarity from the medication. We even had an argument once she was convinced that the SSRI was a narcotic and I was trying to explain to her what it actually was, what it does to the brain, because at that point in time in my life, I didn't take any medication without doing thorough research about it. Mm. I had even found a forum hub that had very well organized information about patients who had taken the medication at what dosage and what experiences they had. So I knew some of the harmful side effects that could happen. I knew that one person on it went into psychosis. I knew another person on it lost all their hair. Another person felt like their body was on fire, but that was so minimal compared to all the people that had benefits from it that I felt like it was worth it. Yeah. I'm flawed because I do feel like our generation is kind of the first to be more accepting that people aren't always in the best of mental states, but that kind of really pushes it for me. Now, I'm actually very fortunate that I know at least my dad wanted me to be happy. He didn't take particularly well to the fact that I said, I don't think I can be happy with my mother in my life. And even then, I don't want anyone to bring my family to harm because that doesn't help the situation at hand. I can respect that my mother is someone my, my dad still loves. I can accept the fact that my siblings live with them. But I have learned to say, the way you treat me makes me feel like you, what you want from me can be supplied by a life-size cardboard cutout. Oof. Yeah. 
And I would rather invest my time, which I can never get back into things that are more rewarding for me, which is things like hosting this podcast. (laughs) This is definitely a fun project, hosting the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really talk to my siblings about mental health. I'd learned from other conversations that Princess was someone who would twist the situation in her favor where she can. So she might be express one side to be to your face and then if she's not happy with you she'll be whinging about you behind your back Uh. we were working in the same place and we were on the same shift she would be caught kind of whinging about things and I usually kind of just stayed out of it but when she tried to bring it home that was that was like you're a backstabbing harpy (laughs) I could understand that I call that being two-faced and I mean I've struggled being that way nice to someone's face and then complain about them to their back and I'm trying to find a balance within myself where I can respectfully express that I have disfavor into this person or you know they've broken my level of respect for them for whatever reason it's kind of scary for me though I mean I have a lot of people pleasing built into the system (laughs) as a whole so yeah it's it's tricky coming out to my sister that i grew up with didn't happen until i was much older till we were both much older definitely not while i was living with her but in the past couple years she's been coming to talk to me about her own mental health journey what diagnoses she thinks might fit her and what she's doing to get screened by professionals and how she's getting along with people who also have that disorder and how she's learning so much about herself which i it's beautiful that she's going through this journey and finding people she can relate to finding things that make her feel like she's a whole person and not defunct in any way. I don't don't know if that's what she would call it. Definitely putting words in people's mouths who aren't here. But, you know, it's also beautiful because it it's part of our relationship now. Like, I, I can talk about mental health all day, all night long, because I've been studying psychology for my own benefit and just as an intense interest for quite a while since I was now 14 or 15 because I was self-harming and I found online forums to deal with depression and self-harm to kind of cope with that and talk to other people that were dealing with it and that helped me so knowing that she's finding people and she's able to share it with me and that we're able to share and that relate and um, me and her have that component where we can talk about how our childhood has affected us in what way and at times we've been able to identify how our childhood affected each of us differently and I just that kind of sharing to me is such a bonding experience like I've been able to be entirely open with her about my mental health history. I'm careful how much I share because I don't want to trigger her or disturb her by sharing graphic details of self-harm or anything like that. I definitely don't share graphic details, but I'll just generally talk about it. Like, yeah, I was struggling with self-harm from here to here because of these things I figured out so far. And, you know, she's like, yeah, I could see that. Or there was one instance when we were living together that... Rogue took control, and me as Zane, I usually took the method of if somebody is going to punch me or kick me, I'm going to find a way to put them into a sleeper hold. A gentle sleeper hold so I don't actually knock them out. My sister did not appreciate this. She felt trapped and scared, as anybody would, by being pinned down by somebody bigger than them. 
and she would go into these little now we know that we're older she had these little blackout episodes when she was angry or hurt or triggered in her own way and so she often targeted me with those and I don't blame her at all. You know, I knew that she was struggling with things and I never wanted to hurt her or actually fight her. But this one day with Rogue, she tried to sucker punch us. (laughs) And Rogue responds to physical threats much more quickly than I do in a much different way. He's, you know, eliminate the threat kind. So he actually punched her right in the sternum and knocked the wind out of her. And I felt... I still feel shame about that. I feel horrible. And her and I have been able to talk about that. And she said, well, I I figured you were just in a certain mood because you were a particular kind of angry. And she appreciates knowing that it was Rogue who was out at that time. And as we talk about these instances that happen, and I have the opportunity to apologize for the ways in which we've hurt or abused her in the past, Mm -hmm. she comes back and with such validation that i'm really surprised because like any time i could expect her to be so angry at me that she needs to yell at me needs to tell me how i treated her horribly as a child etc whatever and she hasn't she's always so respectful and thoughtful in her responses and bringing anything up i'm usually the one to bring it up to apologize for it she hardly brings up anything i did but I can feel us getting closer the more she knows when certain altars were out at certain times. And it's gone so far as that she sent me a birthday present and it was a box full of things. And this box full of things had art supplies for the artists in the system. It had makeup for Queenie and the girls in the system. And it had a cute little set of magnets for the kids. And she thought about all of us like i could actually cry thinking about it and she got something for everyone that she's had a connection with so it's i've i love having been able to come out to my sister she's so intelligent and caring and thoughtful and my mom is learning you know she wasn't always receptive to knowing that we have a whole system of altars one thing she said that told me she might not be receptive to it is that i gave you all a name i expect you to go by that name (laughs) (laughs) but now it's changed to the point where me and my mom have had this conversation and i was just like gee i can't imagine you know because my mom has this fantasy of all of the cool people in our lives living on the same neighborhood block you know we all have our own houses but we all live in the same neighborhood And I said something about how strange it might be to have me walk out of the house in bright clothes one day, dark clothes another day, a dress one day, a suit the next. And she said, you know, I think we would just get to know all of you and say, hey, whoever. And knowing that she was willing to consider acknowledging us for our individual names, for who we are, told me so much. You know what I mean? It's so validating to hear. I almost cried when she said that because I was never sure if she would ever be comfortable with knowing our depths. And she's showing more and more willingness to ask us questions, get to know us individually. So it's been a long journey from being slapped across the face for taking antidepressants to having very candid and open conversations about which alters who. (laughs) I envy you for that. I really do. It's, It's not easy. 
I will admit, and it might be upsetting for her to hear if she's listening to this episode, that there was a period of time I was considering going no contact with her because I just didn't know how to talk with her without either of us getting defensive or shutting each other down or seeming really upset in some way. Mm. And I think I have my sister to thank for that because she did just a little bit of mediating between us, let us know where each other are coming from in this current day and time of our lives because we both changed but we weren't talking to each other like we changed you know what i mean yeah so it's been a really fantastic two years with my family and getting to talk to each other and know what they're going through and there was a point in time in my life i didn't think that i would have any family because with the mental health and the transgenderism i just there was a lot to be concerned about, not from examples in society, but also like with the initial impressions that I got from my family. Yeah. Just to kind of explain. So I mentioned a moment ago that I didn't feel like they wanted the core of my being. They wanted my physical presence and for them, for me to just go along with what they wanted. And that doesn't foster a good relationship. So that's the largest part of why I've chose to go in contact. Right. It's not very validating. It's not acknowledging who you are, what you like, what your preferences are, what hurts you. Yeah. You know what? For several years, my parent, my mother got me romantic comedies for as DVDs for gifts. I hate romantic comedies. Oh, no. They bore me stupid. And so like what would usually happen is she would watch them on a girl's night with her two friends and then they'd just be collecting dust. But that's besides the point of this episode. So I can't really have so much a story on that end. It was mostly the depression, the um, suicidal ideation that I had to come. I came out about. So there was a time I tried to come out to my mom about the suicide, or I did come out to her. Um, she initiated. I think she initiated the conversation. I don't really remember. I mean, this is back before. I, this is like a decade ago. So she tried to tell me that. I could probably talk to my sister about my depression because she would understand being really sad. And I felt like that was oversimplifying what I was going through. And I told her, it's it's not that I'm sad. It's that, you know, I don't feel anything and I don't have energy. And I think about running the car into a street pole every time I drive past one. And I think the conversation dropped off after that and she got perhaps reflective about it because I don't remember us saying much more after I gave my spiel about what the depression was to me and what the most scary parts of it were to me but she did become more concerned when I was in the car so I think she heard me she just didn't know what to do about it because I needed a car to get to work but she also knew I was suicidal when I was in the car I was suicidal all the time back then (laughs) but that was one of the intrusive thoughts I would have, like an idea of how to commit suicide would pop into my head. And I felt that she needed to know that if she was going to try to say that my depression was just sadness, because I don't think heavy sadness really, unless it's prolonged and absolutely a suffering experience, it doesn't lead to suicide. Mm. For most people who are okay, you know, like... If it was just a case of the sads, I wouldn't have been concerned. I wouldn't have brought it up to anybody. But (laughs) it was the self-harm and the suicide that I was really struggling with. And I just 
capped that under the umbrella of depression. So moving on from family, let's talk a bit about coming out to friends. Now, again, I haven't really been open to friends about the depersonalization part because it's something I'm only recently kind of working with. But on the suicidality end, I did come out to the mentor in my first paid job who for the purpose of the podcast I'll call Shep and he will get the joke of this if he can if he does come across it or I share it with him okay <laughs> I did come out to him about the fact that I did lose the will to live and that I had gone as far as walking to a bridge in my neighborhood which is over a major motorway yeah so I told him this and he said if you ever feel like that again pick up your damn phone and call me good friend and the one time I did need it, I went to, uh, there was a swan sanctuary just outside the town we worked in. And we met up there and we just talked for hours. That sounds good. Somebody that's willing to listen and talk with you in that kind of state, I think, is so invaluable. <laughs> Absolutely. I think understanding your friend can be a really big part of it. So we can get, so your point about questions can be a big help in indicating things. But generally, I find that when you have a really good friend, you kind of know that you can be vulnerable to them. Their hand will be on your shoulder in no time flat. But at the same time, I think the big thing is timing can be a really big part in kind of coming out to your friends. So, for example, I know this because she ranted about it for quite a bit, but with Princess, her friend circle had seen a few losses of their own just before our uncle died. Yeah. And she felt awkward to kind of process the grief around her friends because they're all on the same boat and she had been the one who was supporting them. So I think sometimes, unless we're like in an absolute crisis, it's not a terrible thing to say to yourself, okay, you know, this is a short-term issue. Let's fix this first. Because I think when you do come out to your friends after having done this, they will appreciate you all the more because they've got evidence that you value them enough and their well-being that you will kind of say, okay, this can stand aside for now. Let's fix this first. Yeah, I think you have a point there that it's important to consider what kind of state your friend is in when you come out to them or reach out to them for support and having some kind of communication such as hey, I'm struggling today, do you have time to talk at some point? That leaves it open to them to set up what kind of time they're available and leaves it open to them to let you know if they can handle you struggling right now. Not to say that you struggling is too much for them or anything like that, but they might have their own mental health struggles because in, in my experience, I keep making friends who are also struggling with a lot of similar issues. It's kind of that birds of a feather flock together situation where I'm constantly surrounded by people with similar histories of trauma or ADHD or what have you. So usually when I've come out to them, they're like, oh, I deal with that too. Do you deal with this part? And then we have this wonderful back and forth conversation, just relating and finding the differences and similarities that we share under this diagnostic umbrella or set of experiences. When I first started coming out to friends, I'm trying to remember because when I was actively trying 
act actively starting my recovery from self-harm. I reached out to a lot of friends about it that I had at the time. At the time, I trusted my friends more than I trusted anyone in my family. They were the people I could talk to, the people who would listen to me without judgment. My friends, to me, were invaluable lifelines throughout at least high school, adolescence, and into adulthood. And all of them were so supportive. Like... I let them know, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm trying to stop. Um, I think these are some ways that you could help me. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to tell me if I'm saying or doing concerning things? Would you be able to tell me if I've changed? Would you be able to tell me reassuring things? Would you be able to walk me through this list of positive traits about myself? Would you, you know, just asking, would you be willing? And then asking for something specific because you can go to somebody and be like i'm struggling with self-harming and i need help but they've never studied it researched it been trained in how to deal with it they're not a mental health professional there's somebody that's your peer on the same similar plane as you and maybe they're also struggling with it and haven't felt the courage to tell you so mm. i lost my point <laughs> i think it was kind of just saying that you know there can be a great exchange with friends but they're not mental health professionals, so you can't expect miracle workers from your friends. <laughs> At the same time, it's it's important to be realistic about what your friends can do. Yes. So moral support is invaluable when you're mentally ill because it gives you something to feel a bit more grounded. Right. But at the same time, of course, we have to be willing to be the educator if they don't know anything. So before we started recording this, you were among others who have been that way with me because disclosure time um when queenie first opened up to me about your situation the only thing i knew about did was one it exists and two the parts of you are called alters and that was pretty much it and you've learned so much in the meantime which i think if you do have a friend that has the energy and willingness to do extra research on top of it, be willing to educate and point them towards materials that they can look at themselves. Because, I mean, Celine's done that wonderfully. I've had some other friends do that. Usually they don't have the time or energy to look for themselves or they don't know what is a good resource because there's plenty of misinformation out there about different mental health illnesses. If we're talking about dissociative disorders, I think it's more important to educate because there's so much misinformation about it. Yeah, when you come out to your friends, be willing to educate and be willing to be patient because they're not going to understand everything right away. They don't live through what you live through. And dissociation and different mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, PTSD can be so confusing to experience that it can also be confusing to understand from the outside. So if you need to write letters before you come out to somebody, if you need to write an outline of bullet notes of things that you want them to know, those are good self-preparation strategies. If you're really struggling to know how to come out or when to come out, those little things will kind of help guide you. Or they did for me. I'm a visual learners so writing things down helps me a lot yeah me too i'm visual kinesthetic so seeing and doing are my strong suits but if you kind of i don't know if it's fueled by the by the dissociation on my end but i struggle with retaining things orally <laughs> yeah kinesthetic and kinesthetic by doing um is another way that i learned too if i'm just watching a video about it it's not going to go in unless i'm doing something alongside the video 
Yeah. So let's move on to employment. Now, this is where we kind of branch out because family and friends is a human element, whereas employment is a very different beast because there's structure and legislation sometimes involved. Yes. And we did a bit of extra research for this and may provide the links in the show notes. The big thing I want to share for people in the UK who might be struggling with their mental health is don't be afraid to talk to your GP or if you get to the stage where you are referred to a specialist to ask them for help with getting support through work. If you are concerned about your employer not being entirely supportive of you taking the leave you need to attend appointments or anything like that, you can request documentation from the NHS. The specialist will provide you a letter with the NHS logo to confirm that this is the health-related matter. And we do have laws that say that for that employers have an obligation to protect the health of their employees. So in terms of illness itself, we have a system where if you are off from those six days or fewer, you don't have to get like a doctor's note to be off sick. Really? Whether or not you get paid for that time is dependent on the company. So because I'm agency, I get paid for my time. So I don't get paid if I take a day off sick. But when I was permanently working for the um, hardware store, I got so many days sick leave that company sick pay a year. Okay. Now, you know, if you start going into like multiple weeks, oh, sorry, no, if you get over a week, you have to get what is called a fit note. And that is signed off by your doctor. And if you get a fit note, you are entitled to something called statutory sick pay. And it's not very much. It's just under £100 a week. But it's something. <laughs> yeah, at least it's, it's something. <laughs> yeah. If you start going into four weeks continuously, you start being seen as long-term sick. And that can be a bit messy, depending on the situation with the individual employer. So, yeah. I'm not going to go into that one so much. Now... With the USA, admittedly, I don't, I know what I've experienced. I know what I've heard from other people. And I had to do a little extra research to see if we had any kind of central system, kind of like the UK does. And it, we don't in the USA. We do have family sick leave that is federal that's supposed to give you 12 weeks off of unpaid sick leave but in my experience unless you have a doctor's note for being off for a day three days a week whatever you are getting fired and then even if you have a sick note and it's been enough days you might still get fired it seems like sick leave is really company to company it's not a very secure environment for workers and in our research we found that there's a statistic Eight to ten workers say shame and stigma prevent them from seeking help for a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. Eight out of ten. It's staggering, isn't it? I believe it, you know, because I, I grew up in the society. I believe it. I, I know people who are afraid to get mental health help. I was very afraid and sometimes still am about what kind of stigma that's going to put on me, what future employees or co-workers or friends or you know partners if I'm like doing artwork for somebody or something like that like I am very concerned about what they might say or think because I don't 
answer the question of why are you dis because i am legally disabled i don't answer the question of why beyond you know i have depression and trauma that makes it hard for me to work i don't i don't go into detail about it um and a lot of as i say given some of the things we have discussed even prior to the podcast being recorded about the stigma around DID, in part because of the split personality tropes out there. I don't blame you in the slightest. Well, thank you. <laughs> I wish it could be more open. I wish people knew about it, but it's also very emotionally labor intensive to explain these things to people. And I don't really have that will to explain it step by step to an employer. And I also don't feel like I could be reasonably accommodated for, hey, I might miss a couple days because somebody in the system fronted without knowing that we had work. That's, I don't think that's going to fly for any employer in the USA. I think it'd be very, very awkward if some of your alters were out front on a really bad day, like a bit important business meeting, or you get that one grumpy customer in a shop job, you know? <laughs> yeah, imagine the wrong person was fronting that day and decided to have an argument with a customer, or if we were rapid switching during a meeting, like every 10 minutes, they're going to be like, hey, Zane, what do you think about this in the meeting? And I'm going to be like, I don't know what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. Could you catch me up? <laughs> Even though I've been sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's probably why a lot of people in the community seem to be pursuing, if not in, self-employment or education, because they're trying to figure something out. Yeah, I think... That seems to be the experience I have so far. Yeah, that's... I've definitely been trying to figure out self-employment for a while, especially since I got qualification to be legally disabled, because it is a process to gain disability, and your application will... is... it's... Everybody says that your first application for disability will be turned down. You always have to appeal, and it really helps if you can find an attorney that can fight on your behalf, because I had a great team of attorneys provided to me through Volunteers of America, and they went over all of my medical history and made a very compelling argument and sometimes when i read it i'm like wow they're right i do struggle with that that's a shame i struggle with that i would love to be able to do that kind of work <laughs> yeah i definitely struggle with being able to balance a lot of things i think that's why the podcast is really helpful because you know we're holding each other to account most of the time yeah it's always helped me to have an accountability partner especially as a whole system with everybody affronting and switching sometimes they just need the reminder or the motivation or the hey did you know and more or less everyone in the system is willing to help out with what's going on at world some of them aren't but it's less often that we find somebody that's like no i'm not going to do that you know they're typically they're like mm, do i have to right now fine <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least from what I've heard so far, um, a number of your alters are finding the podcast idea quite fun. Yeah, they they are <laughs> quite enjoying it. I still have the tyke in the background here just bouncing around every once in a while. Not saying anything in particular, but just kind of happy to be nearby. <laughs> <laughs> no. I know. <laughs> yeah, I better wrap this one up because it is getting close to dinner time and a hungry Celine is a grumpy Celine. So, so we have 
got some kind of key pointers about pursuit of a therapist. I've been quite lucky on comes of finding a, a counselor who bounce, I bounce off of quite well, including the one that kind of led to um, Queenie opening up to me, which is um, she told me that I'm a fascinating patient because I have a therapist brain, which is a fun thing. But it's nothing to be ashamed of if you, if you need to kind of keep going back and doing it again. And if you need to find a service that works for you, there's nothing wrong with asking for a different counsellor or therapist if you find you don't work with one, because it is interpersonal in nature. Yeah, I would say that too, that in the USA, I suggest shopping around for your mental health care provider. And I do have a list of questions that I would suggest asking a mental health care provider in your first session to get to know them, but I don't know if we have time to go over those. Well, I'll tell you what, in the, we can put those into show notes, so... Look into our show notes for a list of questions for interviewing your mental health care provider. It's particularly good if you have trauma or dissociation. <laughs> As I said, your GP will be more than happy to kind of guide you through what's available in your area. So in the area I live in, we have access to an improving access to psychological therapies program, which has been helpful for when I was in, been in crisis in terms of the depression and anxiety. So in a way, I can't thank them enough. And even the ones I've, I've been to afterwards as well. Um, over here, you can go through your GP to get referrals. It's not guaranteed that they'll be on your insurance or that there won't be a wait list, though. I mean, IAPS um, has a wait, tends to have a waiting list as well. So I think because we are in something of a mental health crisis, which is one of the reasons we decided to make this podcast so that we have this reminder to people that there have been those who've been on this path already and also to kind of open the door in a way that it just kind of sees what's in what's on the other side yeah the you know <laughs> i've had on and off experiences with mental health care and when you can find a therapist that you click with that's usually a great thing because even therapists that are less informed about dissociative identity disorder if we have a good rapport and they're open-minded I find I found them more helpful than some of the therapists who have had experiences with dissociative identity disorder and have strict ideas about what happens with dissociative identity disorder. So it's it's a trick finding the right match. There's no shame in shopping around and saying, "Hey, I don't think these are the services that I need. I'm going to find somebody else. Thank you for your time." And if going through a GP is what helps you, you can start there let your gp know what you're dealing with and that you would like referrals otherwise there's psychologytoday.com and a few other areas online where you can do searches about who takes your insurance and it has other filters who takes your insurance what kind of mental health conditions they deal with if they're male or female if they're lgbt friendly so use the online resources if you can and if you have any local call-in services which some states have uh, i would suggest using those as well definitely prepare yourself to be on a journey i would add that some a lot of the counselors in the nhs system do partake in both nhs and private practice Please be aware, um, I heard this when I was in my attempt at CBT, which fell through, that people in the NHS system for psychological therapy who 
also engage in private practice are not allowed to take clients they've taken through the NHS into their private practice. I believe it's to prevent poaching. Okay, that's good to know. So if you feel that you need more than a couple, then 10 sessions, which is a typical amount offered on an IAPT program, I would also say, you know, shop around, see if you can find a um, therapist willing to do some consultation with you. And because there are low cost private practices out there, if you know where to look. Most, for example, my GP, they have the business cards for a local counselor on the reception desk. That's yeah. So ask around if you think you need a long-term situation. There are low-cost options out there. Otherwise, if you're not already, if you're not sure where to look, the NHS can kind of point you in the right direction. Um, and then here in the USA, you might want to call your insurance ahead of time. You can ask your the mental health provider you've interviewed. You can ask them if they have an insurance code they would use and ask your insurance if they take that code and what the costs would be to you because some insurances we have a lot of privatized insurances in the usa and we have medicare some insurances limit you to only so many sessions in a year and that would be helpful to know ahead of time and another thing i wanted to add is that if you are struggling to find somebody within your budget there are a lot of sliding scale practitioners out there. All you have to do is ask if they have a sliding scale program and what that is. Also very good to know. Well, on those notes, I hope that you have found this episode of Fragmented Minds useful. And hopefully it will shed some light on the ideas for helping you open up to your loved ones about being mentally ill. I also hope that this helps to generate some conversation between you and your friends in a positive way and helps generate conversation in the community about um, best methods in your area to access appropriate medical care, me mental care. All right, then. This has been Celine from London at Fragmented Minds. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And this has been Zane from the Xanity System. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks again for listening to Fragmented Minds, the mental health podcast from the patient's chair, hosted and produced by Celine and the Xanity System, music by Purple Planet, for resources and sources, check our show notes. Have a great day and see you next time.